Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. The Adventure of the Engineer's Thumb by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is only one of two occasions where Watson brings a case directly to Holmes rather than just have someone turn up at Baker Street. The other is the um, unwritten story about the madness of Colonel Warburton. Although this story contains a colonel too. Colonels don't do very well in the Sherlock Holmes canon. Watson has left Baker Street at this point and is working quite close to Paddington Station. One morning, uh, the local guard who works at the station brings a man called Mr Victor Hatherley to uh, Watson's front door very early in the morning. Uh, there seems to be a theme this time about uh, all cases starting very early in the morning. Hatherley looks as if he's been beaten up, or so certainly not himself anyway, and uh, he has a large bandage around his hand. Uh, Watson treats it and discovers that Mr Victor Hatherley has no thumb on one of his hands. He is about to relate the story to how, how this happened when Watson says, let's go and see Sherlock Holmes. Hatherley says he's heard of Holmes and he'd be delighted to go around there and have breakfast with them. Holmes is more than happy to have them involved, uh, to come around for breakfast. And Hatherley tells quite a remarkable story about how he is an orphan and a, uh, a hydraulical engineer. Hydraulical engineer, I should say. Um... But um, since he was qualified and he's got his new premises set up in Victoria Street, which I imagine is the Victoria Street near Victoria Station, he um, hasn't received many uh, jobs to, to use his um, his skills. Then one day, a man called Colonel Lysander Stark comes to see him, who is a German by extraction, and tells him that uh, he would like to ask him to come to a place called Eiford in Berkshire. There is no Eiford in Berkshire. It's probably a, a, a version of Twyford um, near Oxford. Anyway, he comes, to, he says, there's something wrong with this machine. I am mining full as earth in my field. And um, there's actually the field itself. Full as earth, by the way, is a, is a, is very, a, a rich and expensive commodity. So it's worth him keeping quiet that he's got this place in his house or around his house. But he says he will pay 50, 50 guineas for this which is way over the market odds um, for such a, 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 a you know a piece of work. If he can, Hatherley can fix his, his hydraulic press by which he uses this, he also explains that the reason why he's got to keep quiet about it is because the seam sort of also goes under his neighbour's property and um, he's basically stealing it is what he's saying really. So 
Hathaway says, well, yes, he'd like to go. Uh, he can go along and help him that night. But he insists that, um, Stark insists that they go there at 11, they meet at 11 o'clock at night, which means they're not going to get to um, Eiford till about one in the morning. Hathaway says, kind of, you just come the next day. And he says, no, I want you to come at this time. It must be top secret that you're coming here because, um, you know, we don't want anyone to see you there, etc. Hathaway is very, very suspicious of this. And obviously he's, he doesn't like the look of the colonel who just keeps glaring at him all the time and very suspiciously trying to work out, you know, if, if he's if he's on the level. But he keeps thinking about the 50 guineas, which he really needs. So he agrees to meet him the next day. Sorry, at 11pm 11, 11 that night. This they do. And they get set up in a carriage with one horse. Um, Holmes asks later if, if it's just one horse. A horse that is glossy and shiny, as he relates later on. This is an important point. And uh, they drive for an hour or so. So about 12 miles. And they go into um, a house. Now, the windows are frosted out in the coach so he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't see very much of the house either he's just basically bundled inside where he's asked to go and look um at the at the machine when the colonel goes into another room for a second a woman comes out and says to him you must leave it is dangerous you must leave Hathaway being rather headstrong and he's still got his money on that 50 his, his uh his eyes on that 50 guineas which is about four thousand pounds today um he says no i don't think i'll take the risk <laughs> very foolishly as it turns out and he's shown this he's, ent- he's shown into this sort of almost cupboard of a room which you know two people can't stand in pretty much he works out what the problem is straight away one of the um the, the rubber band type things has come off loose and it's losing pressure um so he fixes it and um starts pretty pleased with him although he's, he's not that pleased because he just keeps glaring at him all the time and obviously he's um he's very very suspicious about uh about Hathaway. um but Hathaway, in, in a very headstrong moment, says, now I'm going to go and have another look at this because I think there's something wrong here. And then he works out that, of course, it isn't for uh, for the uh, the removal of Fuller's Earth at all. It's for something legal. But he goes in and um, the colonel loses it with him, locks him in, starts the machine, and basically Hathaway is about to be crushed to death. Um, that passage is particularly well explained. He even goes into, you know, what is the best way for me to, to be killed here? So he's given up his life. The woman lets him out, however, and um, uh, she helps him escape. Uh, he runs, and he's on the second floor of the of this building, um, and uh, Colonel Stark comes after him. He hangs out the window, and he says, you know, it's, it's two stories up. It's about 30 foot. He probably could jump, but he hesitates while he's hanging out of the window, ready to escape. When... Um, Colonel Stark brings down a cleaver on him. He lands, he can feel a dull throb in his hand, and he finds out later on that um, his thumb is missing. Um, the next thing he knows, he's miles away from the, from the building, and uh, he doesn't know how he got there. And then he got the first train back to Paddington, where he met Watson. Holmes insists that they uh, they go back to Eiford as soon as they can later on that day. Um, because he wants a good look at the place. And then he does some clever deductions about how far the house is away from the station, and he deduces, in fact, that it is not six miles out. It is actually right close to the station. They just didn't want him to know where he was. And that's why the horse being glossy is important, which I'll admit I don't quite understand. <laughs> so he does that. Uh, they go along, but the house is no longer there. It's been on fire, um, and it's been on fire for quite a long time, and home deduces pretty much immediately that... When Hathaway was looking around with his lamp, he must have dropped it somewhere, set fire to a curtain, and the house came up. Stark was actually a coiner, um, so therefore he was flooding the market with uh, with farthings, and they must have got away. 
Um, and the story pretty much ends there. Holmes doesn't do a great deal to solve anything. He doesn't even seem that keen to find that the um, to find the villains as such. He's just uh, he's just pleased that he sorted it out. And he tells Hathaway at the very end that he may have lost his fee um, and he may have lost his thumb, but one thing he will have, one thing he will have, is dinner conversation for the rest of his life. My guest this week is Chantelle from Lady Justice Podcast. Lady Justice Podcast is a weekly true crime podcast covering fascinating cases from both the past and the present. Some of them pretty harrowing, I've got to say, um, but brilliantly researched. Um, Chantelle does her own work on those. And uh, and I got to know her really because I wrote a presentation recently on the 10 Rillington Place murders of John Reginald Halliday Christie and went through quite a few um, podcasts, you know, to see if there's anything there that I didn't know about because the, the victims aren't, not a great deal is known about the victims, shall we say. And I found uh, the podcast that uh, Chantelle did were incredibly well researched. I, I learned tons from them. And um, luckily, when we had a chat about that, uh, we discovered that uh, we both like Sherlock Holmes. So it's great to have Chantelle on the show. Chantelle, thank you so much for coming on to um, Sherlock from Adler to Amberley. I've got to do the, the, the full name of the podcast. And I'll also say that uh, if anyone's wondering why there's so much of a gap between this and the last one with Bonnie, it's because uh, we've had sort of some sort of technical issues, which I'm hoping won't be there this time. John, do I sound okay? You sound perfect, Carl. Marvellous. Okay, well, I'll ruin that when it comes to actual content. Um, Chantal, it's great to have you on. I've just explained already about how we sort of virtually met, as it were. Um, and just to talk about, really, about um, Lady Justice podcast, because there are so many, so many true crime podcasts. Um, we are part of one here, for example. Um, what really struck me about yours is that the Rillington Place murders is probably one of the most famous ones in the UK, but you, you really concentrate on the, the lesser-known ones, don't you? Yeah. So the Rillington Place one was actually a request, um, which is why I covered it. But normally I do the kind of forgotten victims, the ones that you wouldn't necessarily know about unless you kind of stumbled across it in an archive. So, like, I, I, I also noticed that you've um, you tend to find a lot of murders not far from where you live. I, sh I should also say that um, when we first started this podcast, uh, which was you know halfway through lockdown, um, the Dominic Cummins thing had just happened, and just as a, was it a coincidence that you chose a murder around Barnard Castle where he was that day taking his uh, taking his children out for a yeah, blind sure. a blind drive. It really, really was. And when they came out, I laughed and I was like, yeah, I can't not. <laughs> you have to do that. <laughs> so it was one of those things I was like, oh, well, you know, that's potluck. That's destiny there. <laughs> Can you remember which case that was? Because I play yours about two or three a day until I'm going to cover them all. Was that the stoning one? Yeah, it was Buttonhole Stoning, yeah. So this is where um, uh, a policeman was stoned by three men on some sort of I got it so long ago. I can't remember now. They, they, he basically, they basically had a beef with some policeman or other, and, and killed him with stones in a very sort of biblical murder type way. Mm -hmm. And in the space of about three minutes as well, before like he'd last been seen and then being um, kind of discovered, it was like three minutes. Good God! And again, that's what I really like about your show because. When I was doing research for Riddington Place, um, 
obviously I should say at this point that if anyone's interested in Jack Ripper murders, you are in the right place, of course you are. Um, but when it comes to the Riddington Place murders, I think there would have been about 15 different podcasts um, and you all stood out because it was so well researched and and you seem to, um, you, you've definitely gone into the archive. You haven't, basically like me, you haven't just gone into, you haven't gone into a, into a book in Wikipedia going, yeah, that's what that happened there and then move on to something else, which, which is what I'd do. Um, you've, you've actually, so did, would you, do you get your sort of research from like local press or is it, microfilm still a thing? Microfiche, I should say. It's um, a mix, really. It depends if if I can get to the area. Obviously, with the lockdown and stuff, it's not as easy. But um, generally, I talk to people that I know will have connections to the case. Sometimes you can't because they were back in the seventeen hundreds. But with everything that is said, you kind of always have to double check because names get mixed up and press tend to report slightly different things so you always have to double check it yeah that's uh, but just to give it by the way we are coming to sherlock everyone soon um just to give a, an example of that during lockdown i gave a talk um on um the ripper murders very much in a sort of introduction talk to white chapel which is about my level really i'm not like a, a proper researcher well, i'm not a researcher at all and i uh repeated the myth that Catherine eddowes the fourth victim was arrested outside in Oldgate um, for being drunk and lying on the street and making a sound like a fire engine. And at the end of that presentation, I was going, that was really good, Carl, that was really good. And then about three people said, Carl, you know that's a myth, don't you? Is, is it? Mm. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> it's good that you go and look out for these things yourself because I would have just, I would have been repeating that in 15 years' time. <laughs> I, love a, I love a good like rabbit hole that's my problem like i'll start researching it will take me like 20 hours because i'm just oh there's a rabbit hole over there <laughs> and i'll just kind of get distracted <laughs> I, I do fed up so a bit with um i've been listening to uh i can never pronounce his surname is it howard saunas it's not soonest but something similar who, who wrote um the um the fred and west fred and rose west book yeah, and uh, his podcast is it's it's grisly as hell. But there's a lot of like first class t- first interviews, like you know, it taken in 1995. And at one point, he starts talking to his son, who obviously, and you don't think about this, who is still around today and is living. I don't know. I think he might have changed his name. And it just makes you think, how the hell do you talk to somebody like that? And you know, yeah. worst thing is as almost as entertainment. Rather, it's not entertainment, but you know, but for to satisfy our own curiosity, when Paul Van's living it every day, what happened to him and his family, and you know, his sisters are dead and what have you. So uh, you've got to be a bit careful, aren't you? I suppose for that. It's one of those things where you you've got to find where your line is because it's subjective. Everyone has um, different ideas when it comes to, you know, what's respectful within the genre and whether the genre is even respectful at all. I wouldn't wear a T-shirt with a killer's face on it. But, no. you know, the, the stories that I tell, the point of me doing it is not to glamorise the guy that killed them. It's to remember the victims because they have a story and they don't really deserve just to be a footnote in a newspaper. Yeah, I think the first time we tried to record this, I was telling you that um, the, the famous 10 Bells pub in Spitalfields for 15 years was called the Jack the Ripper. Someone mm. thought that was a good idea. You know, well, why not name it after one of the victims? Or, you know, because there's two, allegedly two victims in the Ten Bells the night they died. So, so you'd assume that the murderer would be there instead. But for some reason, someone just thought, no, tell what we'll do. We'll just name it after the most hideous human being to ever walk around these streets. And it, it, is, a, uh, it is a strange mix, really, of having to balance that. 
and they had strippers on in the pub at lunchtime as well. Just the taste. John, I've lost you a bit there. Oh, sorry. Um, I think I've just wrecked this, haven't I? Um, <laughs> That's okay. Take it up. Yeah, no, um, and they had strippers on in the pub at lunchtime just to, you know, help the taste uh, increase le- levels there. Oh, good. So, so they were belittling women as well as celebrating their deaths. Because, you know, that... In for a penny. <laughs> <laughs> good. I didn't, I didn't know that, actually. Oh, God, right. I'm going to change the subject then. <laughs> um, let, let, let's get on to happier Victorian tales of dismembered digits. That's, that's what she's got. Um, I always uh, ask the same question, Chantal. The first two uh, questions are always the same on this um, show. Is um, What led you to be interested in the Sherlock Holmes story? In the particular story? or in story, the- sorry, in general. Um, in general, it was mainly one of those things that I've always had Sherlock Holmes. Like, as a kid, I always remember seeing the book in the bookcase, but I didn't really fall into Sherlock Holmes until I was in my 20s. Same as picked it up and I was just like oh okay and then as I just started reading I couldn't stop and I demolished it all <laughs> within about a week and a half and that was it Wait, yeah. Was there anything in particular that uh, that sort of struck you? Was it the actual cleverness of the stories or the adventure elements of it? Or It, it was more just it, it's part in the, the, the storytelling and the development it, it was partly because it's it's still quite alien because it, it's it's like how we would imagine, you know, detectives to solve cases today, but it's still quite alien when you put it in context of history. And yeah, I find that really interesting. Yeah, because it's not just the cases; it's the fact that you know there's foggy London. There's you know they're not cobbles; they're sets. I know I always get told off for saying that. You know, there's uh, there's. There's people running around, you know, quick, quick watts and hats and coats, you know, all that sort of stuff. The game is on, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, from my own point of view, mine was it's very, very similar to you. Whereas I, I, I saw a Sherlock Holmes book in a shop in Birmingham, and it wasn't like a proper one. It was like a, just a small collection, which I still have. I can tell you, for example, I started with Silver Blaze rather than A Scandal of Bohemia, which pretty much every collection starts with, even if it's not the actual collection. They always start with that one, and. Um, I always had this feeling where at some point I'm going to read the Sherlock Holmes story and I'm going to become obsessed by them, but not yet. I must have had that for five years or so. At some point, I know I'm just going to love Sherlock Holmes because I already love that that world of London and Victoriana and, you know, calling people by their surnames because it was, it was rude to call people by their first names. <laughs> you know, that, that ridiculous civility thing, that, that sort of moral judgment about it. So um, I, I had that as well. Um, we're going to talk about the engineer's thumb. Sorry, the adventures, the adventure of the engineer's thumb. Um, question is a big one because it's not always been yes to this for the other guests I've had. Did you enjoy the story? Yes, I did. <laughs> Good. That makes it that, that, that means we can talk for at least another half an hour rather than no, that's terrible. Let's never discuss that ever again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. It was really nice. <laughs> it was too bloody. Too many thumbs in it. What, what, what especially did you like about it? I quite liked it because it it's one of those stories where you don't get a, you don't get the ending that you would hope uh, in a detective story. The the bad guy wins. Yeah, um, and I quite like that. And I think it was just it was a very nice story to come from Watson instead. Yeah, that 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 is that is the big thing for me. 
it's it's not your standard. Um, we were sitting having breakfast at two two one B when you know Holmes threw down the papers and said you know which is what they normally are, aren't they? Those, those sorts yeah. of starts. It, it's a really really interesting story. This one I should explain that. I um, it went in in 1990 when the Radio Four stories came out, um, dramatized by Burt Cools with Clive Merrison as Holmes and Michael Williams as Watson, which I've, I think I've said on every show. That's my Watson. That's my Holmes. Um, the Engineer's Thumb was the first one I ever heard, and uh, I can still remember huge pieces of dialogue from it. Um, even little things like the way he said. Uh, he says, when Watson says, I can take you around to meet Sherlock Holmes, he goes, I, I think I've heard of that fellow. And I thought, well, would you say, I think I've heard of that fellow if literally your someone's just cut your thumb off? I'd be just like, be clutching my thumb, like, just, just anyone. Can someone just, you know, but someone, this is the pain? Nowadays, back then, no, you ignored your pain. Your man. <laughs> it reminds me of the, uh, have you seen the Harry, uh, Harry Enfield sketch where the Terminator goes into like a merchant ivory type household <laughs> and, and, he, and he blows his leg he blows um the, the butler's leg off and he says have a pleasant evening sir it's <laughs> <laughs> a bit like that blood spraying all over watson's surgery oh, i think i've heard of that fellow let's go literally, literally let's go and eat breakfast that would not and be and drink enough brandy to get anybody with a normal amount of blood in the system <laughs> completely oh, wrecked by 7 a.m <laughs> What we need here is brandy. Oh yeah, okay, fair enough. Let's do that. It, it is. It is a strange story, I think, in many ways. Because, um, firstly, as I said in the introduction, uh, there's a colonel in it, and colonels don't do well in the Sherlock Holmes story. So there's, there's Colonel Lysander Stark in this one. Um, Holmes is brought to this attention. Um, sorry, the, the other story that Watson brings Holmes is an unwritten one, although there is a BBC Four but cool story about it. Um, which is the madness of Colonel Warburton. Of Colonel Warburton. Um, there's Colonel Moran coming up as well in the empty house. And uh, so the second you read the word Colonel, you know it's not going to go well for many of that rank. Um, and I also like the fact that it's a train story. Yes. I think that makes it really interesting because obviously trains were the big thing at the time. Um and uh, in the same way that maybe 50, 100 years earlier, it would have been a maritime story that would have really, you know, sort of captured the imagination because that's the sort of glamorous thing. Uh, there's a bit in Silver Blaze when uh, um, Holmes rattles on about, you know, we're traveling at 50, 55 miles an hour because he's worked it up by the, the half mile post or something like that. Just in a sort of, look, everyone, we're talking about trains, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a funky thing. Well, what did you make of Hatterley then? Uh, be honest <laughs> uh, naive um, it, it's um, he's odd isn't he he's a character that uh, I don't know deserved to get his thumb cut off because this weird guy comes into your office and is like I'm going to give you more money than you've ever seen in your life than you've made since you've qualified yeah. <laughs> and you're like yeah alright then no questions asked. Oh, yeah, middle of the night. Yeah, that's fine by me. But he also <laughs> says, uh, "Please state your business. My time is of worth." I am, How? I am <laughs> that because obviously he was putting on a bit of face. I can understand that. Like, yeah, fair. Yeah, it's one of those things. But it's like, you know, I'm not really going to ask any questions. <laughs> my yeah. safety isn't really a big thing here. Clearly, 
by all means, take me to your leader. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry sorry to leave around this, but there's also the bit where the woman who lives in the house, the house he's already wary of, which belongs to the man he's incredibly wary of because he's glaring at him all the time and clearly doesn't trust him. A woman runs out and says, get out for the fear of your life. And the first thing he says is, yeah, it's it's 50 guineas, though. That's a lot of cash. Rent to pay, but if you're not going to survive... Well, this is is a theme, actually, with Holmes as well, because uh, the... um, uh, we haven't done it yet. The Copper Beaches, which I know is coming up soon. Um, the, the 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 I've totally forgotten her name. She but she takes her um, she takes the job because um, she's something supposed to be on forty quid a year, and Mister um, Rucastle offers her a hundred. And Holmes says straight away that would not be. I would not like a sister of mine to take that job. As in, there is a reason why you're being paid more than this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this this is a bit of a theme that Conan Doyle's coming out with straight away, just to sort of just to talk in terms of the narrative, is just to say to the reader straight away, this isn't on the level. Whereas to be honest, just the man glaring at me while trying to persuade me to take up a commission, you <laughs> might as well just take my money, you bastard. This is a secret. You're you're not allowed to say anything. Do you promise? No, do, do you promise? Come on, yeah. promise. Like that enough is it. Especially the way he's described as well, it's quite an eerie kind of character. Yeah. So imagine being sat opposite you, like just staring at you. <laughs> whereas, whereas in the, because I think they are linked actually, because in the Copper Beaches, um, Mr. Rucastle's the funniest man in the world. You know, he, he tells all these stories. He, he can, was he can drink a, a yard of ale while, while singing the national anthem, you know, just to make her laugh and things like that. And I can sort of see why that would work because you think, oh, do you know what? It's a bit weird that he's charging this much money and I've got to wear certain clothes at a certain time, but th- this is a laugh. Whereas Stark is just... <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's like Laurence Olivier in The Marathon Man. You know, I, I, to be honest, I won't go to that dentist. <laughs> Look at him, for God's sake. It, it's, it's, it's quite a weird one, just all of a sudden you trust. And, yeah, he's foreign, which obviously... Especially at the time, it's oh, they're a foreigner. Well, he's clearly guilty. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. <laughs> if you're like, right, okay, you would naturally be wary, which just makes me want to bang my head against the table when you go and go, don't, because as a reader, you're screaming, no, don't. This is gonna end badly. Oh, okay, just don't listen to us then. Fine. <laughs> yeah, you, you carry on, and, and even when he's examining the hydraulic press, he he knows it's dodgy. And he can just say, well, none of my business. I've been paid. You carry on. No, it's no, not that. It's dropping penny. <laughs> it defies gravity. That's what it does. It's like, no, I, let, let, let me get into some more trouble before I go. Um, I mean, if you, if you, if, let me go into a room where you know that there's a pressy which can kill me in probably the most hideous fashion possible. Um, oh, yeah. And there's the woman who said I should leave. So, you know, it's, yeah, repeatedly. Yeah, it's it's a really strange thing. I think um, we always do um, Watson watch on this show, and it's mostly because um, he doesn't actually do much. So obviously, in this story, he does the big thing. He brings them along, and for this one, I think we should include Sherlock watch as well. <laughs> Chantel, what does Sherlock do in this story that's of any benefit? Pretty much nothing. He determines 
where he was, and that is it. <laughs> he works out the, the horse conundrum about where the house is. Yeah. He works out that he's a coiner. And what I really like is how he said, right, Watson, let's go and stop this Stark. We'll go and find him now. No, none of that. It's just, oh, he's just gone away. Yeah. Well, that, well. That's all it is. Um, I think that little scene on in the train where he's with the you know the policeman uh, and sort of says, I think it's to the north, I think it's to the west, I think it's to the south. Well, Holmes, that leaves one for you. You're all wrong. That is literally, it's almost as if Conan Doyle for me has just said, oh, just, just give him something clever to do. Just, <laughs> just let him talk for a minute, will you? And then we'll all get back to listening to what is basically a monologue, isn't it, this story? It is. Um, it's a very, very strange one in the fact that you want Sherlock to do something. And then yeah. even when he does do something, it was pretty much pointless because obviously when they arrived, the house was on fire anyway. Yeah. So they would have kind of noticed where it was. Um, it's very strange. I, I like the fact that we get a bit of character development with Watson because obviously you find out that he's far more civilian. Yes. Um, and I like all of that. And I like the fact that Sherlock kind of takes a step back. It does feel kind of like an experiment. Yeah, it's a different writing style. Now, as I say, it's not quite so formulaic as the other ones. Um, it does have... The um, again, every show we've done so far, I, I do a sort of breakdown of how many of the stories Holmes loses, famously the first one, Scandal of Bohemia, how many times he lets the murderer off, which he's done with the Boskin Valley Mysteries, and this one he doesn't win, he doesn't get close to winning. All he gets is a view of where the house once was, mm-hmm. and that's all it is. And it's a very, very low key ending. Um, it just ends, as, as I said in the recap, it, it just says, he just says, okay, well, you've lost your money, you've lost your thumb, you've probably lost a fair amount of your career because of your thumb, but I'll tell you what, you've got some dinner conversation. And Hathley somehow agrees with him, <laughs> what I can remember. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. I think uh, that comes from the fact that the character is quite naive. Yeah. And, uh, and possibly even because Holmes is quite bored with him now. Yeah, I think... I think Sherlock does this thing, he does it quite often. If there's somebody he doesn't quite like or doesn't quite engage with him, he kind of goes, eh, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, go, go to the idiots at Scotland Yard to do it, that instead. It's one of those things, I think that he was trying to kind of entertain Watson's idea of, oh, yes, this is a great case, and then just kind of be like, right, okay, that, that's over, can I go back now? Yeah. that's what it feels like from Sherlock's perspective that he was trying to be a good friend and that's as far as it went yeah, uh, only bring me colonels from now on please <laughs> don't, don't bring me engineers I only want a colonel ideally um, we're flagging it off here Chantal and yet we both really like the story <laughs> yeah I know it's so, one of strange ones it's where you're like I really like the story there are so many points where you kind of go uh, it's, it doesn't feel like a Sherlock story but it is well, it's interesting to say that because it does make me think maybe that he had the idea and just sort of – it's an interesting story. You know, for a start, it's got, it's got a missing digit in it. Um, maybe he just thought, that's a good idea. Oh, I suppose I can vaguely make a Sherlock story out of that. It, it does I – do, I do think it does come from a bit more of an experimental view where he wants to kind of push Watson in a little bit more. Um 
because like yeah. said, Watson just watches. <laughs> so um, having that, and then the idea that it's quite gory, which is very much of the time. We all love gore, but especially so at the time. And I think it kind of opens up the door for him to do some more gruesome type things as he develops as a writer. Well, it's gothic, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a gothic story. We've already had the speckled band, which, which we did with Bonnie last time. Um, and that, that that's as gothic as hell because it's got a chimpanzee and, a, and, a, and an adder in it. Um, so, you know, there's always a, that, that's always a nice element for the Victorian audience. What I think is particularly interesting is what he did with the story, The Adventure of the Cardboard Box, where, which, of course, has the, um, the story of him taking someone's, uh, the villain taking someone's ears off and posting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a sort of message to somebody else, but he sent it to the wrong address. Um, at the time, Conan Doyle said no, and he holds it back until I think it's in, someone will remind me, but I think it's in memoirs when it could have been an earlier story um, because he thinks that's a, bit too, that's a bit too much. But he's fine with a thumb. Well, the, the thumb doesn't really get damaged if you remember the story. He survives as well, doesn't he, though? I suppose it's nice that, you know, he kills the person who takes the ears off. Yeah, but this thumb, though, it's still burning. Well, it's still there whilst the house is burning when they turn up hours and hours later. Yeah. The thumb's still on the windowsill. Which, oh, God. So the, the thumb, yes, it does get decapitated, but it's still, you know, there and healthy. They probably could have signed that thing back on. Do, do, yeah, do the Alan Palmer thing about sticking your hand in a fridge with a load of Soleros until <laughs> you can go to the hospital and get it sewn on again. Sadly, it didn't take... Uh, sorry, I love Alan Partridge. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 this, but I think you're right. I think it is quite experimental because we've we've got that. You know, he, he does go back to the cardboard box and things. Let, let's do a bit more decapitation stories, which again we're slightly in vogue. Um, but something else he does as well is he's a big fan of secret rooms in houses, mm-hmm. which is very very goth. That's that's I me. Mean, that's like that's a, a, a Edgar Allan Poe, isn't it? Pretty much. So you've got um, you've got the fact that for a reason I can't work out, he's got a hydraulic press indoors. I still don't understand that, to be honest. Someone's going to say, "Oh yeah, that's what you do with them." I don't know, but uh, I don't quite understand why that's in there. I know it's a coining thing, but would you have it inside the building or would you have it in an outhouse? I don't really know. Um, and things like uh, the golden pants nay, where the woman hides in a, in a a sort of priest hole in a house, and the Norwood builder, um, which would you believe ends with a house on fire. Um, where the, the, the Norwood builder, um, who's never forgotten, Josiah somebody, um, builds a little extra room, but you can't, which can't be seen in the house, but Holmes looks at the outside of the house and says, yeah, that room's too small. There's another house, and that's where um, Old Acre, that's it. Old Acre is hiding. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think what comes through in this is, I think it's Conan Doyle's first attempt at sort of moving the story along from... Man chases villain down street with riding crop. Yeah, which is why I think it's still very engaging. Why it's still a good story because there's all these little clues as you go through. It's it's when we talked before we talked about how when he first turns up, he says to Charlotte, first thing you need to know is I'm an orphan." No, <laughs> and you I'm don't. Not yeah, you don't need to tell me that at all. But for the purpose of the story, we really do. So it's all these little drips of information which is very very nice it's it's that i think that's why you still get so brought into the the story because you kind of get all these little bits of information and because you know it's sherlock you're like how how does this all add up 
how does this all add up? And here it doesn't add up in the way that you kind of go, oh, they caught the bad guy, and yes, it's 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 very anti. It just kind of ends, and you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I said last time we did this, when I turned the page and I saw there's only one paragraph left, I, I literally like blew on the page to see if, if I'd missed two pages out because he suddenly just goes, uh, and end. Oh, is yeah. that it? I, I thought there'd be at least another page. I think that's, I quite like that, I think, actually. as The, the more that, because I've read it now three or four times, it's kind of one of those stories where you kind of go, well, what could have been added to that? I quite like where it ended. Because it's nice just to know that Sherlock's kind of human and doesn't want to chase down the bad guy all the time. I think also that maybe that Holmes has forgotten about Hatherley, possibly by the time he's standing outside Baker Street on his way back. Yeah. As in, it's it's nothing to him whatsoever. And again, I talk about this a lot, about he never celebrates his cases it's, it's always what's the next one, because obviously because he's got that sort of mind where he has to be entertained all the time. And, um, and you know, is you know the second a case is over, he plunges into a deep despair because he's got nothing to do for the next 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, so maybe there's an element of end of story, that's it. Whereas, you know, I think other writers would have gone, uh, would have said, you know, and Hathley, you know, he went on to, he, he tends to emigrate people, doesn't he? He went on to Zimbabwe, sorry, Rhodesia, where he... Join the foreign, you know, he just puts some some sort of aftercase for Vincent Hatherley, Vincent Hatherley, and he, he just doesn't in this at all. He just doesn't care. He just leaves it there. I think that's also a very good point, and the fact that, especially when you think of Sherlock and Watson's friendship, of how Sherlock does try with Watson. I know he never really seems like he is, but I think the fact that he kind of went, yes, okay, I'll take the case. Okay, well, I'm not going to you know, blame you for bringing me this very boring case. I think that really does speak volumes to how they work together, especially now that Watson's kind of, you know, got his own surgery and he's he's doing his own thing in his own, like, world. I I think that's a huge part of it. His mate's gone. His mate's brought around the case. And it is interesting because, you know, there's there's a man without a thumb sitting in his living room drinking brandy at (laughs) 7am, which, which, to be honest, isn't the ideal start for most days. Um, you know, you're sitting down for, for Weetabix and then suddenly your mate comes around with a man with only nine digits. And um, there, I think that there may be a case of like, you know, it is interesting, but I, I think this is a really interesting story for the Watson, Holmes Watson um, characteristic between the two, the relationship between the two. Because they're not, they're not overly friendly to each other. It's more of a case of, here's work. Work's arrived here. Holmes, I brought you work. And Holmes is just sort of, yeah, yeah, okay. It's not the greatest story in the world, but okay. Um, which is why I think he, why he seems so delighted at um, everyone messing up the horse thing. Mm-hmm. As in, you know, oh, great. Now, now this is fine. Now, now I can do this. Now I, now I am happy to do this as well. Um, one thing I ha- we haven't touched on is uh, about Lysander Stark um, is the suggestion that he's killed before. So he's got no intention of giving the 50 guineas anyway. He was always going to kill him because he says there's somebody, um, as it, I think as it, I can't remember if it's Holmes or Watson says, maybe that may represent the last time that he needed his... Um, that was the yeah, Sherlock, yeah. Was Sherlock, yeah. Um, I think it's one of those things where <laughs> you kind of clocked on that he wasn't going to pay him anyway. 
especially yeah. when you think from the, 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 their first meeting and then when he comes into the house and he's kind of ushering the woman back into the room and then kind of, you know, the hushed tones taking him up the stairs so he's not quite sure which corridor he's going down and things like that. Um, you kind of get the feeling that he's definitely not going to pay him anyway. Yeah. I think the adding of, oh, well, you know, you promise you're not going to do it again. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> it is the worst world you can hear there if you're happily, isn't it? You said you wouldn't kill this one. Oh, I know, but, you know, the last one was fun. You know, <laughs> you don't want to hear the word again there, do you? But then he just kind of hangs on still. He still <laughs> he hangs outside the window and you're like, really? I know it's a big drop, but she's just said again, again. Like, you you would kind of go, yeah, okay, I don't mind breaking my legs. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, what now? Did you say, uh, oh, again? Uh, right, I'm off now. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very... Uh, if if he was written in any other way, you would kind of go, well, how did this happen? I think the character very much moves the story on. But, yeah, he's a very strange character. The fact that he goes, oh, again, okay, well, that's still a big drop. <laughs> There's also about this, and this is just a thought I'm having now, isn't there a bit of a conspiracy theory going on here as well that we can start? Because we've only got half of these words for this. He could have lost his thumb at some other time. He seems perfectly fine for a man who's just jumped out of a window um, and, you know, and hasn't passed out. I know he did pass out, but he'd pass out again, surely. Um, No one knows how he can get back to Baker Street from... uh, I love this in the annotated um, home, someone's worked it out, like, you know, what time he would have left to be able to get to home, to get to um, 7am to get to uh, Watson Surgery. When he gets the the house, they do find the thumb, actually, that's fair enough. Maybe that ruins my entire theory. <laughs> but, um, yeah, fair enough. Um, but no one sees him do it. I mean, he, he could have set fire. I mean, I know he did set fire to the house, didn't he, because he knocked the lamp over. But part of me does think, could this be just a big ruse? Maybe Hathaway's done something wrong because he's got no one to back him up at all. We never see the woman again. What what gets me is there is a doctor mentioned that owns the house and that he's yes. just a guest and that's obviously Stark. Um, so so what does the doctor think of all of this? Because his house is just burnt down. Yeah, Do and, all, and also the foundations of his house would have gone anyway because he's doing a big press thing. Sorry, that's he hasn't, has he? Of course, I keep thinking he is actually digging full as earth. He's not, is he? Uh, <laughs> but still, he's got a giant. I turned into trigger. That's what I've done. <laughs> of, uh, I guess, like you're like, oh yeah, um, bring in your luggage. What's this? A giant hydraulic press. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we um, spare room. I'm, it, I'm 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 making some coasters in the spare room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's very strange. Like the, the doctors never questioned. Nobody knows where the doctor is. All of a sudden. They, they mentioned that he has a guest. He mentioned so clearly he's okay and alive. But and presu- no- presumably also there's a body somewhere around from the first place because he just disappeared, didn't he? He wasn't. This is it, and it, it's very odd. And the, the police have known about the, the counterfeit money for about a year anyway. So if you knew where about the money was coming from, you've had a year. Why hadn't you gone sorted anything out? <laughs> But just to recap for the listener here, we both really like this story. <laughs> it's it's a really good story, but it does have a lot of holes. I think that's the best thing about Conan Doyle. I love I love that. I absolutely love that he's that um 
he he does uh, he does reel them off. I do again. I say this all the time. I do feel guilty about slagging off some of the stories, <laughs> but um, this one is just it's one I look forward to. There are stories coming up that um, I think that they're quite dull, and then they haven't got enough Sherlock in them, um, which is odd for this one because Sherlock's hardly in it at all. He does his best work sitting on a train. That's literally all he does. Um, other than pointing out, so yes, that's what happened to that, and that's the entire story. But it's interesting, and as you say, the big thing for me is, and, and you as well, is, is the Watson start. That's just huge, and it's it's such a nice story in many ways because it's, as you say, it's an experiment. It's the first time he tries different things other than just the, the you know the straight chase through the or you know app- apprehending the bank robber in the vault. My God, what's happening here? You know that sort of thing. It, it's a general, and he loses as well. I always think the cases that people lose are always the better ones, anyway. Because because the, the later stories, there's an awful lot of. There's no way he can solve this. I'm thinking, for example, the, the disappearance of Lady Carfax, mm-hmm. where the woman's just about to be buried, and he gets there in what four seconds or something mm-hmm. before. You know, it it, it, go, it does get very sort of damsel tried and um, tied to the train track for the later stories. He's there just in time. And I, I really like the, the, the element about the story is that the villain gets away and he seems almost quite pleased that he got away, such as his indifference, which he was a bit like with John Clay in Red Head League as well, where he said, to like, you know, he had a great mind and it's such a shame in some ways that he's being captured. So I, th- I, think, there's a, I think there's a huge element of that. Um, there isn't a great deal more to talk about the engineer's film <laughs> because it's also it's also a very quite a short story as well. Um, I think I know what you're going to say here. I ask this question every week. You like the engineer's thumb, You've admitted that. Is there a story that you don't like? The Mazarin Stone. I knew that because we've already recorded this podcast before, <laughs> and John had an idea for this. If you'd like to do it, and I still think we should. When we do the Mazaran Stone, and again, I feel so bad for Sir Arthur <laughs> doing this, we really should do an international panel of, I think it could be up to 40 people at that point, <laughs> talking about why we don't like the Mazaran Stone. What, let me ask you another question then. Think of another one you don't like. I, I'll do the same. I'll give okay. another example. I am not a fan of the three students. Uh... <sighs> Okay, hold on. Why? Uh, no, no, I'll pick a worse one than that. Sorry, the Three Gables. Don't okay. like Three Gables at all. Yeah. Um, for pre- I mean, when we do this, um, I've got someone in mind to discuss this with because it's incredibly racist. Yeah. It's viciously racist. And uh, the whole Steve Dixie, is that his name? Um, oh, my God. I mean, we're, we're talking about this well, you know, where... Um, um, a few weeks after, you know, anything with the old blackface thing from um, the Mighty Boosh has just been cancelled. You know, we can't see that on the screen again and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, um, yeah, and it's just a version of that. Uh, and I know it's a different time. For example, I'm a big P.G. Woodhouse fan, and I heard the story, uh, the audio book the other day, of the one where um, where Bertie joins a banjo band to get him out, out of marrying people, which is what all, all the stories about him getting out of marrying people he doesn't want to marry. Mm-hmm. And he joins this uh, this minstrel show, this this free use of the N-word. And it's just free use all the way through it. Um, and uh, so I think when we do um, 
when we do the three gables that's going to take a while i think <laughs> to pull yeah, through that. Probably uh, would. yeah and again i know people say yeah but that's a generational thing but it's just so uncomfortable reading it it just is and i'd rather read about a man having his thumb taken <laughs> off by a meat cleaver two stories up while hanging onto a window than read that it, i think that, yeah. i think that's better so Chantel, thank you for coming on we will invite you back on again um probably on the 45 people version of the <laughs> <laughs> of the uh, thing what, what have you got coming up on the lady justice podcast oh so right now uh we've got pretty much all of july books and sorted out so we've got some really interesting ones we've got an assassination there is uh the first ever appeal in the uk um, that's going to be on, and uh, the Yorkshire Witch, which I'm actually really excited for. Wow, excellent! You, you do a lot of just Northern England stuff as well, don't you? Um, I, know that's, I know that's where you are, roughly. Yeah, um, I like to do cases where, like I said, that I could go to and stuff. Um, I quite like Northern cases because they don't get anywhere near as much coverage. There is another podcast, um, Jenny from Murder Up North. She just does Northern cases. Um, but, you know, I also have a fascination with Suffolk where I grew up and there are some really interesting cases from there as well. So I like to do the ones that I'm really familiar with because I kind of grew up with their stories and they kind of interweave into local legend as well. So I, I've got a similar thing with, with, the, uh, uh, with the Ripper story because there's the, uh, the infamous Jack the Ripper diary of James Maybrick, um, which is, it's, if you want to believe it's genuine or not, um, uh, is in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. In Riverside Road, Liverpool, right on the River Mersey. So it's weird when I went to see the house a couple of years ago and thinking, this is really weird. I live in London, not too far from East London. I can be at Whitechapel in an hour if I was brave enough to get on a tube at the moment, which I'm certainly <laughs> not going to do. Yeah. No way am I doing that. And uh, yeah, so to be able to stand in you know my home city and, and think, right, this is a possibly a Jack the Ripper. This, this is possibly him. It does mean, I think if it's. Um, if it's close to where you are, it does sort of resonate a little bit more. There's a few of the cases that I've done. There was one from Middlesbrough. I lived literally two houses down. Um, the one that was in Stockton on Tees, I didn't know this until I accidentally stumbled across the case, but I'd lived literally across the back alley from it for about six years. And I used to hang around on the field where they were found. That's that's just the strange thing for me. I think I, t- I told you this last time we we, we spoke. I went to um, Wardlebrook Avenue in Hattersley in Manchester um, when I was doing some work on the um, the Moors murders, where of course uh, he, he killed twice the final two murders and um, uh, three murders, I think actually. And the house isn't there, like Rillington Place. There's just a gap where houses should be. And what really hit me about that, it doesn't look particularly eerie. That you know, It doesn't even look particularly strange that suddenly it's house, 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 house. Big gap, house. Um, if you didn't know that was what had gone on there, you wouldn't think twice about it. But when you did, and when there was kids playing football against the wall outside, bearing in mind what they liked, that just that really got to me. And I think it's because it was northern as well, and I'm northern. Um, it's really strange how it does tend to resonate more. When I think when you think about there's this whole thing in the Ripper thing at the moment, about you know, people talking about the murder far more than the victims. But I think once you live geographically, you have an emotional attachment mm-hmm. to that place. It somehow makes it even more 
darker in some ways. I, I, the last one I heard of yours was the um, the father and the brother who killed the insane mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that that was just again the the, the frightening thing. Please, if you're listening to this, please find that. What what what's that called in your podcast? The Killer Family. The Killer Family. Yeah. Please have a listen to that and be prepared to listen to it with your mouth hanging wide open. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, that was quite recent. I don't remember. I've never read about anything about that at all. Yeah, that was in 95. And yeah. I think what it is, especially kind of doing cases where you wouldn't know, you know, the, the people involved, even if they are very modern. Why I like to do it is because these stories do kind of get forgotten, but they're still part of the living memory of these towns, these cities. And though the people may not remember, there's still echoes of it there. Yeah. Somebody might move into that house or it's like what you said about kids still playing there. It's, it's something where if you've got the knowledge, it's very eerie. And if you don't, I think it's something you do need to know and to recognize. We, we were talking about this on, well, I read a discussion on Facebook again, just to go back to Ripper things. Um, somebody uh, asked a friend of ours, Philip, um, um, when Mary Caddy was killed, she was the one who was killed indoors. I mean, literally torn to pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, someone said, you know, did um, did anyone live in that room afterwards? And Philip said, literally two weeks after that, because it, it was housing. You had to do that. And, and I always think, you know, I've just done something on uh, Rillington Place where, you know, that it's the, the, the layout, you can't stand in Rillington Place anymore. It's, it's in the middle of someone's garden and the middle of someone's living room where the house would have been. And you think, do the people who live in that building know what's happened even though it's not a house, it's not, it's not the same physical place, but it's the same area. And then you only have to go there and try and take photos of the place and see how many bad looks you get. Yeah, they know. Mm-hmm. It's really strange. I know like they do things like they knock down Cromwell Street and the 25 Cromwell Street for, for the rest, uh, Fred and Rose Wests. But for the, 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 the sort of stories you're looking at, it's so downplayed that it's – you wouldn't know. It's not – you know, it's it's not really a cause celeb. It's just, and I think that's the most fascinating thing about your web, your, about your podcast. It's just so, you know, you, you're shining lights on things that no one has ever shined a light on. It's, and, uh, almost if it's commonplace, and none of your murders are commonplace. I say your murders. You did not kill them. I want that to be played, made play. Yeah, thanks for uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> um, but yeah, the ones you talk about, they're just. It's not just you know stab run away. It's horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people are capable of absolutely horrible things and um, I'm really interested in criminology um, there's a bit of a running joke that I should have studied criminology um, but it's one of those things where <clears throat> how we interact as humans and the fact that we kind of bury these really awful deeds it's very interesting to me is why do we bury this? But, you know, Jeff, who stabbed and ran away, gets the headline in the newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's brilliant. Well, um, we're running out of time. I, I, I beg and implore anyone to listen to uh, Lady Justice podcast just because it's absolutely fantastic. I, it, 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 every time it comes up in my feed, I think, hey, means I've got something to listen to on my daily walk today. Um, now the government have allowed us out of the house. So I'd like to thank you. We will invite you back on. Um, maybe not for the Mazaran Stone, because I think we might have a genuine problem crashing Skype if we do that <laughs> uh, with so many people. But um, thank you so much. And uh, 
best of luck with the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And I would love to come back. Excellent. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.